From Dartmouth College, I'm Lee Coffin, Dean of Admission and Financial Aid. Welcome to The Search. College admissions is one of those high profile topics that invites speculative chatter. I think the very essence of admissions, the idea that there's an elusive commodity, a seat in an entering class, and the process of attaining said seat rests outside your direct control. And that generates some fuss. I've often joked that my title is catnip. When people learn what I do, especially on an airplane, the questions are unending. People wonder, they worry. They've heard things. Inside Higher Ed had an article uh, about admissions that said the image of college admission officers as gatekeepers is a powerful one. And part of the mystique is that what they do goes on behind closed doors. That observation was in 2007, before Facebook and Instagram and Twitter erased any norm of less than immediate access and transparency. Compounding things, the media pays attention, sharing news from the admission beat with the same horse race narrative that dominates political coverage, sans polling. But I suppose acceptance rates are statistical proxies for that. Admission outcomes matter in some zip codes more than others. It's the perfect combination of ambition paired with angst, truth twinned with innuendo, competition mixed with merit. Am I good enough? Was she good enough? Uncle Harry thinks your list is unimpressive. Your colleague's wife's third cousin visited Campus X and heard only kids from Georgia with 4.0s get accepted, and you live in Chicago and you have a 3.9. Too few, too many, not enough, what if? The head spins. Anyway, let's just say there's a lot of noise in this process. So let's diffuse it. Uh, let's try and parse some of the chatter with a panel we're calling My Neighbor Says. Credit for this idea goes to Aaron Lyman, Director of College Counseling at Berkshire School in Sheffield, Massachusetts, who imagined a set of questions as part of her junior kickoff program this winter. As it so happened, I was one of her panelists and I thought, what a cool idea for a podcast. So Aaron, hello, welcome to The Search. Hi Lee, thanks for having me. Great to see you again. And um, Aaron, in addition to being a college counselor once upon a time was an admission officer at UVM and at Columbia. So like a lot of people who go into college counseling has some roots in the college admissions side of this. But Aaron, what, what prompted you to frame this set of questions we're gonna bandy about today? Like what, what do you hear from your school side of this that your parents and students are fretting about? My goal was to kind of demystify um, that what happens on the other side of the desk um, and for me to have the opportunity to share with our families um, that there is a human element to this college process and that relationships really matter. Um, but if you have not worked on the other side of the desk, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to believe that there is really a truly a human element. Um, and it was really fun. And that's the other thing, the feedback I got from the families after is that this was, um, it, it took down their stress level. And Good. that was a huge goal of mine. <laughs> Good, no, taking down the stress level is one of my goals in the podcast is to go week by week and offer some reassurance to families that this is still doable, that they're not lost and that the work we're doing 
in college admission is more normal than not. So joining us today are two of my fellow deans to help uh, tiptoe through Aaron's questions as we get them. Uh, Emily Roper Doten is the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at Olin College of Engineering in Needham, Massachusetts. And Matthew Hyde is Assistant Vice President and Dean of Admission at Lafayette College. So hi to Matt and Emily. Hello, Lee, happy to be here. Hi. And joining the panel representing the Parents of America, no pressure, is Kara Carter. Kara is the mom of four um, kids who attended Shaker Heights High School in Shaker Heights, Ohio, uh, two of whom, John and Maggie, are seniors this year and going through the virtual college search themselves. So Kara, looking forward to your perspective as a mom, listening to the questions from Aaron and seeing if they ring true to what you hear. But I wonder if you could start us off. Like, How's this process been this year for you as a parent? And what do you hear from your peers in Shaker Heights as they come into the finale of this year's admission process? Yeah, hi Lee, it's so good to be here um, and uh, hello to Matt and Emily and Aaron as well. So um, as Lee mentioned, I have four kids. And uh, so I've been through this process a couple of times before. I have a graduated student who's been out of school for a couple of years. I have a present uh, student in college. He's finishing his last year virtually. And now I have twins who are going through this whole process uh, virtually, um, the, the admissions process. And so your question, you know, what are people fretting about? I think parents who haven't been through the process before are really thinking fire and brimstone. Oh boy, this is, you know, everything's virtual and nothing's the same. And the kid hasn't seen any schools and so on and so on. They're, they're freaking out a little bit. And, you know, when I think about if there's anything to freak out about, it's really this whole notion of, you know, finding your community that is difficult to do if you don't visit the campus. I think there's still maybe time to, to catch up on that. So, yeah, I think everyone is sort of thinking about it as, boy, I don't even understand the rules as they were before. Now it feels like all bets are off. And oh man, you know, my kid is going to get hung out to dry. All right. So that means there's some worry in the atmosphere as the high school class of 21 comes into the final moments of its college search and as the class of 22 begins. So the juniors mm -hmm. in high school are ramping up right at the same time the seniors are finishing. So Aaron, uh, I'm going to deputize you as my guest host for episode two, and I am going to join Matt and Emily in the cast of characters answering your questions. So microphone is yours to shoot us some questions. My neighbor says that there is no way anyone is going to get to see any of their colleges. So are you, will you be offering in-person visits this spring and summer at your colleges? Yeah, I'm going to jump right in here and say, yeah, gosh, I hope so. You know, but here we are on our campus trying to protect the health and well-being of our of our current students, um, and you know, with the, the different operational levels um, that we have deemed appropriate to welcome visitors. I don't know where we're going to be um, in April, in May, in June, in July. So we're hoping that um, our prospects will continue to be uh, nimble and on their toes and engage with us where we're allowed to be. 
Yeah, I think Matt's answer is one that none of us like to give, but we feel like we're in that holding pattern too and figuring out what's the right thing to do for our communities and for the students not putting pressure on themselves to try to get to visits and really thinking about what is an equitable process, who can access lights to get to a campus or who can quarantine in another state to be able to go to a visit. And so, you know, I think we're leaning toward not opening for visits till summer, but that's a hard choice we have to make and one that we're making, you know, with our eyes wide open and as part of our planning for how are we going to engage virtually with our admitted students to be able to set them up as best we possibly can with as many personal interactions that give them that sense of community. Um, and we're, we're crossing our fingers that we're doing the right things and trying to think, you know, four steps ahead. But again, that the uncertainty is, is surrounding all of us in ways that are not always our most comfortable places to be, right? <laughs> well, Emily and Matt, how have you reimagined April as we come, last year we did it on the fly, you know, the, the pandemic hit and we pivoted with no warning from open houses and campus visits and suddenly we were virtual and had to invent it. But a year later, sadly, we're still virtual, but we've had time to plan. Like, as you look you know, into April and kind of answer Kara's question, you know, how, people are worrying about how do you sense out community when you're not there? So we actually, for folks who don't know, Olin actually has a second phase of our admission process where we bring students to campus. And so we actually made the call months ago to make that an entirely virtual event. So normally they're on campus for a day and a half, they're interviewed, they do all kinds of things, amazing amounts of community building. It's almost like orientation part one. It's that kind of community experience. And so we've had to think about how do we explain how do we show, how do we transfer the feeling, <laughs> the spirit of a place in a Zoom room? Um, and so I think the best thing that we did was essentially deputize or hire a bunch of students mm -hmm. to help us figure out what that looks like. And so I'll give you one example. And so one of the things, you know, we, we have a kickoff for the program, right? And that's me and a student welcomer. And, you know, we kind of do some speeches and some logistics and what's this all gonna look and feel like? And then we broke the students down separate from their parents and the students went into small breakout rooms with current Olin students and we had pre-mailed them origami kits. And so they had a bunch of icebreaker questions. They were all doing origami together on Zoom while their parents were on a parents only tour with three students, a couple of current parents and our director of dining services. And so able, we were trying to create small moments for our, the students to interact with current students on their own, you know, maybe that time where you wander away from your family on a tour, <laughs> or if you do an overnight when you're by yourself, right? So trying to think about how are, what are the ways that we can, that this, that our current students were suggesting to us to start building those relationships, because it is, community is all about the web of relationships that you knit, right? And so how do we create some of those moments? And so I think using our students as the architects of what that was going to look like, um, so far, so far, so good. And you know, I think it's providing lots of different opportunities, lots of different ways for people to engage, not just a panel, not just zooming into class, but thinking about what are some of the more casual ways where natural conversation can flow and feel a little bit more like, oh, we're actually sitting in the dining hall with my host having that conversation. Don't, I've, I've been struck over the past year by how adaptable the students have been to this digital reality and how much parents and I'll put myself in the parent group. Those of us who are a little, I remember the 20th century 
struggle to kind of, I missed being in person, but I have found my young friends in high school have been much more able to bounce into this virtual space with, with an ability to make connections, as Emily was just saying. Aaron and, and Kara, have you seen that from your kids? Or yeah, you know, um, I was just talking about this with my kids the other day. So they're 18. Cell phones have been in existence since the day they were born. Our kids have the ability uh, to connect meaningfully on their phones virtually in ways that far surpass what anybody my generation knows how to do. Yeah. So, you know, I, I know I'm I'm here to offer the conspiratorial parent perspective, <laughs> but I feel like I'm the one kind of going around calming down all my friends. Like, it's going to be okay. That's it's going to be okay. Okay, Aaron, question number two. Sure. My neighbor says that because so many students took gap years in the class of 2020, that there's no space left for the class of 2020 and 2021 and 2022. Is this true? False. Double false. The, the reality is, um, yes, we had an increase in those who requested deferred enrollment, but that's not going to shape the decisions I make on thousands um, of our current candidates. Um, you know, is it going to change our offer of admission number? It might, but, but it would be noise when I look at that larger offer that we're going to make. So it's, it's nothing for a prospective parent to be thinking about. Question three. Well, my dentist says that testing doesn't matter anymore, that the SAT is going out of business and the ACT is soon to follow. So my kid doesn't need to do any testing, right? So your dentist is drilling down on testing. Yep. Totally. <laughs> can, I, can I add a wrinkle? Can I add one wrinkle to that? So if a test is optional, but I got a really good score, I'm going to submit my, my score. And that's probably going to work in my favor. So does that, if I'm thinking like the conspiratorial parent and my kid didn't have good scores and they don't submit it, well, then it's going to be obvious to the admission officer that they must have had bad scores and that's why none were submitted. So is it truly optional? Well, I'll unpack that a little bit. And yes, it is truly optional. Taking a test is a skill that a young person can develop. Um, and, and different prospects have had different opportunities to develop that set of skills. And I think we need to all agree right now that what a 17-year-old does, filling out dots for three hours and 45 minutes of their life on a Saturday morning, has no bearing on how powerful they can be in our communities. Let's just all agree to that. You know, but I think this conversation around test optional um, nationally, I think has cast a really important light on thinking long and hard about what is this test truly measuring? Um, and spending a whole day in our admissions committees, very rarely did the test come into the conversation. Um, in some cases, it was there and it was powerful. That's great. Almost expected for the student based on who they are and where they're coming from. When it wasn't there, we weren't left guessing what's the test because I had years of academic achievement to be considering beyond that high stakes moment. What about to Kara's point that the student took the test and got a high score and wanted to send it in because it seemed advantageous to do so? Well, I mean, our whole job is about making assumptions. Um, and, you know, we, we can make that assumption that if the score isn't there, then it must be really soft. We can make that. But what good does that do me in the admissions committee? Um, so, you know, we are going to make that assumption, um, but we're going to let, let it go very, very quickly and comfortably when everything else is in line in that application. And I would say, Kara, that, you know, 
I can honestly say I didn't, I didn't read a single file and stop and say, why are there or are there not scores in this file? When they were there, I read them in the context of the file. When they were not there, I didn't wonder why. And often I knew why, because the test was inaccessible to lots of kids this year. And I know I told my colleagues at Dartmouth to read the file based on what's in it, not what's missing from it. And when the scores were there, they were, as always, supporting pieces of information to the transcript, as Matt said. When they were missing, the transcript stood alone. And the... um, but the question remains, do these pieces of information help us answer this really big question? Can you do the work um, on my campus? Okay, Aaron. So my daughter um, is an outstanding athlete and has really excelled um, in her first year of high school and has been told by a college coach um, that she's been slotted, which means um, she will be attending our college um, in, in four years. So, so she can just kind of coast through high school now. She's all set. Yeah, she's not. It, it turns out that admission decisions come from um, admissions professionals, um, not, not coaches. Um, that being stated, um, we can assign merit to many things in our approach to evaluating a candidate. And we do inform um, our uh, understanding of merit when we do have um, a coach in this case saying, you know what, this student has, has potential to impact our program in a positive way. So yeah, we're gonna pay attention to that. But I also know there's a whole lot of maturation that happens and and growth that happens from ninth grade through to the senior year. So I would caution any family that's getting that kind of signal from a coach that they can put that in the bank and expect an offer of admission four years later. Eric, so you're the mom of a D1 recruit. What, What was her experience? Yeah, so her experience, she's been an athlete her whole life, but she's a three season athlete. So she played hockey, ice hockey, uh, lacrosse and field hockey. She only made the decision as she completed her sophomore year in high school that she wanted to play field hockey in college rather than ice hockey. Lacrosse was never, we don't have a real strong program. And so that just was, that's kind of her fun sport. Okay, you wanna play field hockey. Well, there are 75 colleges across the U.S. who have field hockey teams. So do you, you know, is she, is she going to play Division One or is she going to play Division Three? Um, is she going to get a scholarship or not a scholarship? And it's a long process. Um, coaches change. Coaches change their minds. What a kid looks like as a freshman isn't necessarily how they show up as a senior, kids get injured, I hate to say it, but they get injured and they change their minds. So, um, you know, one thing that we thought about a lot uh, for my daughter is could field hockey help her get into a school that she might not have been able to get into academically on her own? And the answer is, I don't know, maybe, but do I want her to go to a school that feels a certain way that she wouldn't necessarily academically fit in? Is she really going to be happy? And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy where she landed at a, a university, a big university that's going to have a lot of different options for her, a fabulous coach, couldn't ask for um, a better fit there. And, um, so that, and you know, her high school t- coach told her, if you get injured your freshman year in 
college, you better be somewhere that you would have wanted to go to anyway. So I think, you know, it's like any decision, it's really complicated and nothing is, nothing's guaranteed. Well, my neighbor also says that because of COVID, international students and students who um, need to apply for financial aid will not be getting into college. Is this true that international students and students who need financial aid are facing an even trickier path this year? So panelists, let's split that up. Let's do international and financial aid separately and try and tie. So I, international, I'll, I'll tackle that one first. I, I think last year during the height of COVID, international students had a tough time getting to the United States. That was the issue. They were admitted because they are exciting additions to the student bodies we're trying to create in a global kind of moment in world history. Getting a visa during a pandemic or, or a student who called up in August and said, my international airport is closed until October, what do I do? And we said, I think you have to wait and come next year. Um, so that's back to the gap year question that, that helped increase the number of gapping students because they could not leave their countries and some countries being a bit more um, challenging than others. So I think this year there, there should not be any um, ripple into the international zone in terms of their admission. The financial aid part of this kind of whisper, if you need aid, you're not getting in. I, I think the answer there is it depends. And it depends is not a cop-out. You hear a lot of admission officers say it depends because it depends on the college. It depends on the admission policy at that college. It depends on the resources at that college. So I think Matt, Emily, and I might all answer this question differently. Um, you know, my answer would be there's no difference. Um, you know, our policy remained the same. Um, we're prepared to spend the resources required to enroll the class that gets admitted this spring and to meet their need now and for four years. But that's a really privileged position in American higher ed. And I'm happy to work in a place that can say that and others may have to give a different answer to that question. Yeah, uh, and you know, fortunately we have a similar situation where you know, need-based financial aid is a priority for the college and our, our budget has increased actually in this pandemic but we are feeling more pressure. And I think most enrollment divisions are to help um, address any sort of budget challenges that this pandemic has um, hoisted upon us. So um, we're aware of that. I mean, in the end, we need to deliver a class that meets the many different priorities, oftentimes competing priorities um, that are set before us. Um, but I think we would all agree that the long-term success of our institutions has to do with enrollment and, and making choices now that have that, that propel us forward in our effort to become um, more um, more accessible, uh, more powerful, uh, more diverse, and that requires significant financial aid. I mean, these institutions are huge investments to be made. You know, they're worth every penny, <laughs> but the situation is it's a joint investment between family and student and institution, and we are not giving up on that by any stretch in this pandemic. Yeah, I would agree. And I'd, I'd actually love to add a little shade to the international piece where we had a number of students that were in the similar situation. They weren't going to be able to get to us for the fall semester. And so we actually made sure that they were able to enroll virtually for the fall. And so they we made sure that we had virtual 
orientation programs for them. We didn't have all of our first years on campus. We had most of them on campus, but they were able to make some connections, stay connected through the fall. So they're not impacting enrollment next year from a deferred standpoint. They joined us on campus this spring. And so depending on how the campus opened may also depend on what, what ways those students are flowing through. Um, and so that can you know, certainly impact the deferred numbers in different places, but I think depending on how the, the school met their own pandemic challenges for their communities, um, it might not have any impact. Great, thank you. Um, my uncle says that being a legacy doesn't matter anymore. He said that he and his wife are a double legacy and that pretty much if your name isn't on a building or you don't have an endowed scholarship in your family's name, your connection to your alma mater doesn't matter anymore. Is this true? I'm gonna go with, with false. In, in the, with, with that, it's like, yeah, um, I mean, we're going to make enrollment choices that are not rooted in a family's connection with the college. You know, that, that connection can be uh, informed by that legacy, um, no doubt, but it's not going to dictate or define the choice that we make. You know, is there a preference for those who have a legacy connection nationally? There is, um, but it's going to differ from institution to institution. You know, I think there are certainly on the private part of higher ed, there's a relationship from generation to generation with the institution. And I think the myth that the children of alumni have an easier path into the college disrespects those applicants and their merit. You know, they apply. And one factor among many in our respective processes is their connection to the college. And when that's true, that's a reason we might invite them in. Um, it does not turn inadmissible students into freshmen. Uh, and I think the other part of the question though, Aaron was about, you know, if you give a scholarship where you have a building named after you, that's, that's not legacy so much as it's philanthropy, which is, could be graduates, but it's just more broadly, you know, the families that are investing in our campuses and, um, what's the what's the ongoing connection between them and us but that's not always a legacy and all legacies i would say few legacies end up in that that philanthropic spot the the, the pronounced legacy connection does give us an indicator though it does allow us to make a, a firmer assumption that you know what the student's more likely to enroll possibly now, do I know that for sure? I don't, but am I gonna make that assumption? I am, and that could, I think, positively sway a conversation, um, making the admissions committee um, thinking that the stu student's more likely to enroll if we offer them admission, which in this unknowable landscape, when I have any kind of clue or indicator, that's something that I can not necessarily put in the bank, but it can certainly um, be uh, uh, helpful to that student when we're considering them. I wanna jump in and just, cause that, I'm wondering like, Kara, as you hear Matt, say that does that surprise you like as you're hearing like a dean talk about kind of a really pragmatic issue like making sure he's got the right number of students when we open in september yeah that totally resonates with me in fact i was with a group of parents um recently and we were talking about you know what improves your chances and what makes it harder and one of the other parents said something along the lines of, you know, if your kid has applied to like 12 schools, then it's not obvious, this parent might have been me, um, <laughs> <laughs> then it's not obvious to the 
the admissions officer, where does your student really want to go? Right? So, I mean, my, my personal opinion, I think kids apply to too many schools these days. <laughs> that might be an unpopular perspective for this, for this podcast, but, you know. I think Can debunk the, a myth in yeah. something that Kara just said? So I, what I heard in your perspective was, if I know that the applicant that I'm reading is applying to all these other colleges, I have no idea where else they're applying, right? You know, and so I think there is this funny assumption on the part of sometimes the applicant or their families that like, we know things that we don't know. We know <laughs> you applied to us. And it's the applicant's job in their essays or short answers or the ways in which they're engaging with the application to show us that they know us and that they're interested in us. So we're not thinking that, oh, they're choosing, you know, are, are we one among many? Are we one among four? So that means they like us this percentage more. We have no idea where else they have applied. And so I think it's really about how does the student, for us, it's more about how does the student demonstrate their potential connection to our institution by the work that they put into their file. Um, and again, it's, you know, when Matt said before, like, you know, we make some assumptions. We're not making assumptions about where else they're applying or how many other places they're applying. We don't, we don't have time. But here's the thing, and this is just one perspective, which is one of the ways that students used to be able to demonstrate their interest in a school was when the admissions officer visited their high school, did they go to that assembly? And then did they visit the school? And of course, neither of those things are happening right now. So outside of your application, your essays, and so on, um, I think there is some anxiety on the, the part of parents, you know, how does my kid demonstrate how interested they are? By doing a thoughtful application. And I think Matt and Emily have said that, that as we're hmm. reading, we have not turned off the lights in terms of the way we are um, introducing the college to the prospective applicants over the past year. We've shifted to an electronic format, but we're still doing info sessions and drone tours and Zoom this and Facebook that and Instagrammy and things that I don't even know about and won't go there. But you know, the 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 conversation has continued just in different ways. And I, piggybacking on Emily's point, um, by definition, regular decision means students have applied to multiple places. So when I'm in this part of the admission cycle, I know that a, a student should have applied to a few, if not several other options. And that is not my um, worry. There is a pragmatic piece that Matt touched on, which is at the end of all of this, I have to say to the college where I work, this class is full because that full class helps guarantee the college's budget for the upcoming year and the way the majors unfold in that, that student body. But I don't, um, I don't really stop and think a lot about where else they applied. I do stop and think about, does this application make sense? As I'm, as I'm meeting someone in the file and seeing lots of evidence of, oh, you do what we do that's called fit. That's called, I see mm -hmm. the reason behind John's application to Dartmouth because 
he and we share an interest in sustainability and the program in that area is really vivid and that makes sense as opposed to you're talking about things we don't do and that feels like a looser version of demonstrated interest like you've applied to a college that doesn't really sync up with what we do or who you are and that's where particularly as the selectivity part of this kicks in we notice that and respond in favor of the students that have really articulated their case well and on occasion say well this seems a bit fuzzier and fuzzy is often situational. I mean, some students just don't have the agency to be able to frame their story with that kind of crispness. So you, you'd use a little poetic license there. But the question is really, um, among your many options, um, how is this one uh, stacking up against the person you have introduced through your file? Aaron's so, nodding as I say that. So does that, is that up another question? Yeah, it's it, because my masseuse said oh, God. Um, that the whole point of the supplemental <laughs> essay um, is just to discourage people from applying to a ton of common app schools. Um, the, the supplemental essays are just a way of, of weeding people out. I hope you didn't true? give that masseuse a tip. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, the, the whole it? point of the additional pieces are because we maybe can't get what we need from the common application. We're asking things that are specific to our institutions to help us understand whether or not this is someone that would contribute and grow on our campus. Like in there, I think the, um, I, I don't I don't think any of us are thinking about the, the supplement as a way to winnow a pool but more to communicate what our values are in the in the application. So it's actually it's actually another touch point for students in thinking about is this place a good fit for me? And I like I think of one of our questions is what issue is facing the world that engineers should be working on and why do you want to be a part of that? And so that allows us to say does this student's values and their particular interest in this discipline resonate with the way we think about engineering? Um, and so you know, certainly we wouldn't think of it as a, as its own gatekeeper to keep someone from, you know, applying that's not truly interested, but it's more about reinforcing our values and who we are through the application and keeping that student, giving that student an opportunity to shine their light on that fit and that match and why they're applying. It's sort of like what you were saying about test scores. Right. It gives you another it gives you more information about who the student is. And I'll never forget when my daughter was applying to Tufts, the um, the supplemental essay question that year, one of them anyway, was, you know, tell us about your nerdy side. And my daughter, I love her to death and she is a super nerd and she very easily answered that question <laughs> and it really spoke to who she is as a person. And that probably played into how much her uh, the person who read her file thought wow this kid is a really great candidate and from my lens as a college counselor it's been really fun to um, read the diversity of questions that are asked through the supplemental essays and how students can find out more about the schools um, in terms of understanding what their priorities are for the type of characters they want on campus and what's important to their community mission 
and and some, like you said, are super creative. Um, sometimes they're one word answers, a list of one word answers. Sometimes it is like, please tell us why you're a map for our institution. Um, just that frank, and um, and it's really fun for me as a college counselor to talk through those answers before a student writes them because it says a lot about the institution as to what they they want to ask of you that the common application hasn't given them the uh, opportunity to find out about. Do we have more more questions? Yeah, you sure a couple more? more, yeah. Okay. Um, actually, on the on the topic of demonstrating interest, my daughter's um, advisor from outside of school said it's going to be impossible to demonstrate interest. Um, how can we demonstrate interest if we can't even come to campus? I think um, be aware that it's our job to purvey a vibe. Um, and, you know, it's best when we can do it in person on campus in this face-to-face -face environment and in these communities that are built on relationships and connection. Um, and I think to Lee's point earlier, um, this generation that has grown up with touchscreens is more comfortable in this space. And I think Emily, you know, launched our conversation this evening saying, we need to root um, our delivery of that message uh, in the experience of our students. So you don't need necessarily, you know, a middle aging um, admissions guy <laughs> trying to sort of create and manufacture uh, uh, sort of that vibe. You know, we, we need our students to sort of curate a set of experiences that, that sort of deliver, this is what, in my case, Lafayette is all about. Um, and we, we are, um, we're creating those opportunities as best we can. You know, Lee shared that, you know, last April, we, we were pivoting very quickly and having to build this path as we were walking it and trying to deliver these experiences. We've had a lot more time to be uh, strategic and thoughtful in how we engage and inspire these young people. So um, I'm looking forward to the challenge of, of creating more opportunities for students to engage with us virtually. The silver lining of this pandemic is we've become much more accessible um, in this space to many, many more students across the country and around the world. Um, but yeah, I miss what I call our closer. You know, we have a gorgeous hilltop campus that surprises a lot of people. Um, and I'm gonna miss having that as we roll through this April. But um, you're darn right if I'm going to try to capture the best of that sort of experience, that visceral experience, and deliver it um, virtually. Well, and I hope I'm not going to seed more conspiracy theories, but we all have technologies that allow us to see who's coming into the Zoom room, yes. right? So like if you're a school, that part of the calculus you need to do to get to September 1 or move in, right, with the right number of students, and you need a big piece of that to be students who are super engaged through their process, we are actually able to still track interest in lots of different ways. And we have been hustling on this side to provide as many different types of opportunities as possible to meet students where they are. We also have to have a certain amount of understanding and generosity to know that the students are also possibly doing remote school, hybrid school, helping a younger child, helping a sick parent, somebody lost a job, right? So I think this is the year where, you know, our, our dashboards are still lighting up with students showing up for virtual tours and signing up for things where if it matters in our process, we're still going to be able to find it. But I think most of us are trying to center the fact that we are in a weird world right now, right? And that people's lives and their experiences this year are not gonna look the same. And so if we had benchmarks for demonstrated interest in the past that said, oh, they've been on campus. So, you know, this shows this type of interest. And so it's gonna help us predict that students yield in a particular way. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that in, in normal times, 
the most selective schools are probably paying the least attention to demonstrated interest, right? As, as schools become less selective, they're probably paying more attention to demonstrated interest. But we have an entirely new, new dictionary this year mm-hmm. of what all of these things mean. And I think you know, one, of our, one of our hopes or one of Aaron's hopes at the beginning was really to talk about the humility and the humanity that is actually infused in this process. And I think nothing takes everybody to a new human level than a pandemic. Like we're all, we're all experiencing this in, in ways that we have to, we have to not, we have to understand or try to imagine what can be happening on the other side. We're really, many of us going to, what are the words that they're saying in their application? Who is the person that we're meeting in the application and letting that guide where we go? Well, Emily, I like the, I like the metaphor of we have a new dictionary because I, I connect that back to one of Kara's opening comment about parents being anxious about how this year is unfolding because they have a dictionary with a vocabulary that is not necessarily part of the language right now. How's that as a metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I, you know, I think we all kind of went into this admission cycle last spring and summer and then fall expecting, okay, soon, things are gonna turn the corner and we're gonna be back in person or there's going to be something that feels normal in air quotes and, and it didn't happen. And so I think the, Matt called it the silver lining of the pandemic. I think as we move beyond you know, remote admissions, uh, I think some of the things we've invented this year will persist because it, it was easier to do a high school visit in Cleveland without having to fly to Cleveland. And we could do it after school and have to not take kids out of their AP English class to be able to talk to them about who we are. And I can imagine high school saying, hey, keep doing that. Like that was a lot less fuss um, than having this parade of admission officers in and out of my guidance office every day in September and October and maybe November and maybe again in April. And this is another <laughs> way of, of just meeting, meeting students where they are and save the on-campus components of it for either the finale, you know, to Matt's point about here's the college on the hill uh, touch the brick. So Kara, uh, Kara and Aaron, maybe one question more from Aaron. And then Kara, if you want to ponder like from your mom's side of this process, you have one more question you want to toss to us, but Aaron. Well, um, Emily brought it up um, back to the, the humanity part of this process, um, because my daughter's best friend's father said that um, your schools get about 50,000 applications. And actually only read about a thousand of them and then you outsource to like a company to read the rest. Is this true? I think all of us who are admission officers um, are wrapping up episode one was reading season. We've spent the last 12, 14, 16 weeks reading and the idea that we would cut the pool in some precipitous way and only read it. How do you know who to read unless you read them all? And I always have you know, in the, in the in-person moments when we talk about reading, someone will always, usually a dad will raise a hand and say, this just doesn't sound efficient. Like you read them all cover to cover. Like, <laughs> uh, you do it repeatedly. Reading them one by one as slow as it is. And then not to say we don't make eliminations as 
as the process moves forward, I mean, the pool does contract and you start to identify here are the contenders and here are the ones that are going to be not admitted for whatever reason at whatever college, but we read them all. Uh, I think uh, the, the suspicion that we outsource what is the most important part of our job is to me preposterous. It doesn't serve us well to do anything too too quickly or to um, to shortcut the reading process that allows us to bring in our next generation. Might we sometimes hire outside readers to help us that are highly trained, who are who read lots of test files before they ever touch a real file, who probably don't read alone for a very long time, you know, so that we make sure that they understand the work that we need them to do. It, like Lee just said, this is this is sort of the biggest thing that we do because it's the it's the, how we get to the place of who's actually going to then choose us, and so we have to have those thoughtful processes to get us there. It's labor intensive for sure, but most of us are here because we like short stories and they you know an application is basically a nice short story, right? And we, we need to be comfortable with the uh, the inefficiency here um, on, on many fronts because it is massively inefficient, but Lee brings up a really important point, this idea of perspective. You know, one of my very favorite moments each year when we worked together at Tufts was when Lee pulled us together and said, let's talk about our biases, positive and negative. You know, we all have a different lens that we're looking through at these students. Let's be aware of our own lens um, and let's be aware of one another's as an admissions committee. You know, we need an admissions committee that is, um, that is diverse, that has dimension to it, because we're trying to create craft a, a class that has that same diversity and dimension. So, you know, I think that's where the inefficiency is built into this, but it has to be that way for us to be completely thoughtful, and, and I would say successful in building the communities that we're, we're striving to create. All right, Kara, as our guest parent, you get the last, um, I've heard dot, dot, dot questioned. I think, you know, Lee, when you opened this, you were, you talked through the voice of a student, right? What the student's thinking. I think there's a big parent component and they're probably the ones you hear from the most and everything feels really personal. You know, you chose my child or you didn't choose my child. And what I've heard from Lee, Emily, Matt all throughout is this notion, and Matt, you just said it, building a class. You've reinforced some of what I knew about what you're looking for and what, uh, what really sort of jumps out as you're reading these applications. You're really feeling who these students are. And your objective isn't to either accept or deny or reject, or no, what's the word we're supposed to use? De decline. Decline, either accept or decline. All right, what I was gonna say is this, that the, the perspective of the admissions officer, the admissions dean isn't to either accept or decline a student because it's not really that micro, it's bigger. It's about building this class of the the students who are going to be successful, they're going to be successful there. They're going to enjoy their time there, which is connected to them being more likely to be more successful and that it's a very human process. And I think parents and probably kids forget that. Thank you, Kara. That's a great valedictory comment for this conversation about 
uh, dispelling the myths of college admission. So Aaron, thanks so much for sharing your questions with us, but also with our audience. And Matt and Emily, thanks for, for joining the search as our guest deans. And Kara, thank you for, for voicing uh, on, on your shoulders the parent concerns of the college admission world. That's a, that was a big task, but they- <laughs> um, Keep your fingers crossed. I still have one kid who's still in it. We still don't know where he's going, so. Okay, so. Let, me, let me talk about Lafayette College. We're waiting on some letters. We're waiting on some letters, and then we've, he's got a big decision. Which is an appropriate step for him to be at at this point in the calendar year. Exactly. Exactly. And I would wrap this episode by saying, you know, what I hope came through the questions Aaron posed and the answers we gave is the idea that you shouldn't listen to everything you hear. There are a lot of sources out there and maybe because we're isolated, those sources become even more magnified. You turn to social media, perhaps for an answer to a question you couldn't get in person. It's like use your own lens to gather information, draw your own conclusions and trust yourself to be a good judge of information and less suspicious. I, you know, one of the things I hope this podcast has done over the two seasons is to reassure you that this work is not random, that there is honor in it and that the end result even when their nose are well considered. But the point is um, we go one by one. So next week we return with an episode on selectivity. How do colleges make their decisions? And as decisions are released in the coming days, what does it mean to be admitted, to be waitlisted, to be declined? And how should each applicant absorb that news as it arrives? I'm Lee Coffin from Dartmouth College. Thanks for joining us on The Search. Music